Father in heaven, we count it such a great privilege to be here in your house in this day. Lord, um, a beautiful morning that we could rejoice with the opportunity and the privilege that we have to be protected, that we could come into your house and to look into your word, Lord, to know and expect a blessing from it. Pray that our hearts and our minds could be focused upon your word in this day. Pray that on a, a special weekend where we memorialize those that gave their lives so that we could have that privilege, Lord, pray that we would have a greater appreciation for the gift and the blessing that we have to live in this nation. Lord, pray that we would appreciate the sacrifices that were made and that um, even as we get to spend time with our families and, and rejoice and, and fellowship together for a, a, an, exp- an extended weekend, Lord, to recognize that there are so many that don't have that privilege anymore because of the sacrifice they made and pray that it could be an appreciation for them and in our spiritual lives, the appreciation, Lord, for the gift that you gave to give us the opportunity to be your children. Father, so many things to think about and be thankful for on this day, and we pray that as we'd open your word, that you'd speak to us from it. For it will give you thanks in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. I ask you to turn with me to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 1. Uh, I'll confess, I as I was struggling with where to go and, and what the Lord was kind of laying on my heart for, for the message this morning, I, I thought there's got to be a message about Memorial Day. and um, I've had a, a couple of veterans tell me, "Don't uh, we appreciate you thanking us for your service on Memorial Day, but that's not what we're supposed to be doing. Memorial, is not, Memorial Day is not the day to thank veterans for their service. We should do that every day. That's Veterans Day. Memorial's Day is the day that we memorialize or we remember those that gave their lives and sacrificed themselves for the freedoms that we have. And I, and I was studying and, and looking at different stories and um, had a, a bunch of different things come to mind that I was trying to shoehorn into a message. It's not to say that there wasn't one there, but what really struck me was the Lord kept bringing me back to some themes that we talked about at Easter and really took away, um, gave me a conviction that using a story today or using some kind of story to talk about Memorial Day is not really what he had in mind. But I felt that it was necessary for all of us just to, to recognize and maybe even pause at the beginning of a service to, to recognize the blessing that we have for all of those that did give their lives for our, our nation. 1.2 million servicemen and women. 1.2 million had died in service to our nation. That's not where our sermon is going to go this morning. That's not where the message is going to go this morning, but... I have a feeling it, some of it may weave its way back into some of the thoughts that we'll share. Um, Acts chapter 1. When, what would we do if we didn't have Acts? What would the Bible look like if we didn't have the book of Acts? The Bible would be 
the apostle or the the epistle of John. It would end with John, and all of a sudden we'd end up in Rome. We'd be in Jerusalem with Jesus. We'd end John's gospel, and all of a sudden we'd be in Romans chapter one, and we would miss all of these experiences that we learn of the early church. But one piece that we would miss right at the beginning of the book of Acts is the transition from the disciples as, and I don't mean to be flippant, but there's I, I, the image in my mind is little ducks following the mother duck, or the father duck in this case. The disciples following the teacher and watching everything that he did and then having to step out on their own and him ascending into heaven and them being left there standing wondering what to do next. And so I'd like us to, um, I think we'll, we'll read through it all the way, and then we may even get into chapter 2, just depending on how quickly this goes. But the, the, the imagery that I'd like you to have, or that I was trying to have as I was reading this today, was trying to unbias myself of the opinions I've had of the disciples. You know, we, we read, this happens in the Old Testament too, even from Sunday school, we read stories about these characters in the Bible, and we don't, I, I will say me, I won't leave you, I'll leave you out of it. I don't often appreciate the circumstances that were going on with them. I, I get mad or get annoyed by the Israelites when they were complaining about the manna from heaven. Or they were complaining that they had to follow this giant pillar of fire at night and a cloud in the day. And I, I, I would, as a kid, I'd say, they had all these supernatural things happening around them, and yet they were still discouraged. They had all of these miraculous things that would happen. You know, I, I read three chapters in the Bible, and they had... 27 miracles happened in three chapters. Don't quote those numbers. I'm just throwing it out there. And I don't recognize that those three chapters may have covered 300 years or even three generations. And that the circumstances that we read are, are accounts of real people living in real times and with real stresses and real emotions and struggles and victories and failures. And so I, I ask as we read it today, Maybe try to recognize or appreciate some of the things that we know have just led up to the last few weeks of their, their lives. Um, the miraculous transformations that have taken place in their understanding of God and in their following of Christ and, and now seeing where, seeing where we find them. With that way too lengthy intro here, let, let's start with verse 1 of, of Acts chapter 1. As the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to both do and to teach, unto the day in which he was taken up, after that the Holy Ghost had been given had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after the passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, 
but ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and into all Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, which they beheld, while they beheld, he was taken up and in a cloud received him out of their sight. And when they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye many as ye have seen him in, go into heaven. And they returned unto the Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into the upper room where abode both G- James, excuse me, Peter and James, and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120, Men and brethren, the scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers of Jerusalem, insomuch that the field is called in their proper tongue, Akeldema, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let the habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein and his bishopric let another take. Wherefore, of these men, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and, among us, and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, unto the same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias, And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen. Then that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lots fell fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. All of chapter 1. So, we know Luke, as the author here of, um, of Acts, is, is giving the rest of the story. Um, it's the, the Paul Harvey line, and, and now the rest of the story. Now you know the rest of the story. Well, this is that middle part of the story. If we skipped right from John to the Apostle Paul writing in Rome, we wouldn't have any of the accounts of how these disciples of Christ became the apostles and led the early church. Some of the times they were stumbling. Some of the times they were having struggles and, and figuring things out. And even this story this morning has, has an example of that. But 
there's, there's an honesty that, I mean, that shouldn't be surprising, but I appreciate the fact that there's an honesty of the struggles that they had and the encounters that they had and the conversations that went on between um, each of the, the leaders of the early church and, and even questions that they had here for Jesus in his last days. And so just to, to dive right into the verses, it says that, you know, this is the trees, this is written to Theophilus, and I won't get into the questions about who that might have been or what the origin is, but he's who this is addressed to. And Luke's saying that, I've recorded everything, there's already been a record of Jesus' life, and here we are now, I want to take you from the day in which the Holy Ghost had given commandments to his apostles and explain what happened thereafter. It says, to whom he also showed himself alive after his passion. So after his crucifixion, he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs, which are recorded in the other Gospels, being seen to them for 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That Jesus, for 40 days after his crucifixion, there was with his disciples, with the other followers that were with them. And and I love that it, it starts to number. It says that in the next part of the chapter, it talks about how there was 120 of them that were gathered together. And at the end, it also, when we're talking about Justice and Matthias, these were two that were not named previously, but were two that it says had been with Jesus from the baptism of John all the way up into his crucifixion. So this was a much bigger group than just the twelve and Mary Magdalene and the other women that they know. This was a larger group that had been following Christ. And it says that they were all assembled. Yeah, they were all assembled together. And Jesus tells them that they should not depart Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. We know John wrote so much about the the Holy Spirit coming and and talked about the Comforter, that the Comforter will come and who will lead you into all truth. When Jesus talked about how he was going to have to go away and to prepare a place for you, but I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I will leave somebody that will help you and will guide you and, and and that being the Holy Ghost. And so he's saying here, he's like, I'm going to go. It's, it's, it's time for me to depart. But I don't want you to leave Jerusalem because I'm sending the Holy Ghost to you. I'm sending you that comfort. He doesn't say the comforter in this spot here, but I'm sending that helper that I promised. The one that I told you about, he's coming and not too many days hence. But what question do they ask him? The response that they give is, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Jesus just tells them, well, excuse me, he he also explained, he said, he told them that the Comforter was coming. He says, you know, John baptized with water. You all saw that. At the beginning of this ministry, I went down to the water, John baptized me. And you're going to be baptized with a, a similar baptism of the Holy Spirit not too many days from now. Explaining that that's going to be a further fulfillment of the promises and of the teachings that he had given them. More proof of 
their redemption, more proof of the victory that uh, his resurrection had given them over sin and death. And he's explaining to them this powerfully spiritual concept, but one that they obviously still are not understanding. They've been given all the teaching for it. They've had all of the the instruction up to this point. They've read all the books. They they know in their head exactly what he's what they believe they understand in their heads exactly what he has been teaching them. But then we get this evidence that they're still a little bit shackled to this old nature and, and shackled to this former understanding because they say, Lord, will this time Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Jesus is talking in a spiritual realm and explaining to them the next step in their walk with him. And their understanding is like reversed and rewound all the way back three years before when they thought that they were getting the Messiah. And we can see this through their conversations with Christ all through the walk. That in moments and pieces, there's always this um, falling back on another crutch. Falling back on this original crutch. Not original crutch, but this original reliance on institutional teaching that we're looking for the Messiah. We're looking for someone to overthrow Rome. We're over looking for someone that's going to, to take control of this oppression that we're feeling. And, you know, maybe this is because I'm a parent. No, it's not maybe. Absolutely this is because I'm a parent. But sometimes when I read these stories, and I read these accounts, when I read these accounts of the disciples or someone coming back and asking the same foolish question after being given so many examples to the contrary, or so many examples of what they should have been asking, I get really frustrated. I get really frustrated because I remember, I'll give you one example. And it's an example that I didn't get frustrated this morning because I had already been preparing this message and it was, had an impression on me. The kiddos are going to go to mom and dad's this afternoon and, um, and go swimming. Yeah, I mean, we'll see how long they last in the water because it's not going to be all that warm. But they're excited to go swimming. And so before they were getting ready for church, we told them all, you need to get all of your stuff together to be prepared to go swimming. You need to pack your bags, have a bathing suit, everything ready. Everybody make sure you have all your stuff. And so I come out, I'm dressed, we're all ready to go. And I asked the question, I said, does everybody have their stuff? Are, they all, are you all ready to go swimming at Grammy and Papa's? Yep. We're all ready. And they're all distracted doing other things. Reading, watching something, a little video or something. And so then mommy comes out of the, the door or the room and says, does everybody have their, their bathing suits? Like I asked, is everybody ready? I just asked the general, do you have what you need? And mom keying into the fact that just generalizations with 11 to 6-year-olds is not really helpful, especially for the 6-year-old. The question was, did you pack your bathing suit? And he pops up. Oh, I forgot. And he, he has to run upstairs and get everything. He hadn't packed anything. He had nothing prepared. He had nothing prepared. Yet he's been talking about going swimming for the last week. And my natural dad reaction was, are you kidding me? I didn't do it because I, had, I, I was... I was recalling what Jesus did here this morning. I just died on the cross. Jesus, I didn't. Jesus, Jesus, I just died on the cross. I've been with you for 40 days now. 
preparing you, letting you put your hand on my side, hand through my, or your fingers through the holes in my hand. You've gotten to experience this whole thing. And I just told you a couple months ago, maybe a year ago, whatever it is, the Comforter will come. The Holy Ghost will be here. I go to prepare a place for you. Where I go, you can't go, but I will send someone. He will comfort you. Okay, we got it. Everybody understand? Okay, now, John baptized with water. I'm gonna, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit in not too many days. Not too long from now, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then the little ducks come out. Is that the time that the, the kingdom will be restored to Israel? Is that, is that when the Messiah is going to come and, and take over and kick all of the, the Romans out? I mean, Jesus had grace. He didn't, oh my goodness, what did you not understand about this? Where were you when I told you a little while ago that the comforter was coming? Where were you when I told you to pack your bathing suit for Grammy's house? This isn't that hard a concept. Why were you not listening? But with grace in heavenly measure, Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times nor the seasons which the Father hath put in his power. That will come. Your question's not a bad one. But it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. But you will receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses of me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus doesn't linger on... and Obviously, he wasn't frustrated. Obviously, he had the grace to know that these were young believers who still didn't have the power of the Spirit in their lives. They were relying on experience that they had with them. They were taking all the best things that they knew and putting it together and it still was not a complete picture. And he told them, he, he didn't even have to say it. He almost read between, you, we can read between the lines saying, that's not for you to know, but when the Spirit comes, you're going to have power. The Holy Ghost is going to give you the power to discern things that you can't understand right now. And it and is come unto you, and he shall make you witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. The Spirit of God is going to come upon you and testify that you are my child. Even though... Even though your question that you just asked me clearly points out that you're not complete yet, you don't have it all figured out, that you haven't perfected yourself enough, that you, that you can't perfect yourself enough, I'm going to prove to you that it has nothing to do with you. I'm going to prove to you that your redemption has nothing to do with you but for the grace of God because... In spite of your weakness, in spite of your problems, in spite of the things that you war against, the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The location piece of this is interesting because he says to them, stay here in Jerusalem because this is where the Spirit's going to come to you. He was so specific. He didn't tell them, I need you to... This wasn't even a... a, a um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? An abstract. That's not the right one. Well, I'll use abstract. Ambiguous. It wasn't an ambiguous direction that Jesus gave the disciples. He said, stay here. Stay here in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit's going to come to you. 
Now that was a little bit contradictory to what he had told them before. Before he had said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. All of those directions said, go somewhere, spread, spread the good news. But knowing that he was about to depart, he said, I need you to stay here. And he even told them it wasn't going to have to be long. He said, not too many days the Spirit's going to come. And then when you have the power, once the Spirit's been given to you and you have His power and you can understand the things that you read, you can understand and appreciate all of those teachings that I gave you, all of those parables that were ambiguous at the time, that didn't make all that much sense, that you were left afterwards going, I don't quite understand that, and how do I do this? And what? My grace will be upon you at that point with my Spirit's direction in your lives to be able to explain the things that for right now you can't follow. And then... You'll be a witness for me in Jerusalem. That seemed pretty comfortable. That was the place where they, they were among other believers. That's where most of the believers were. That's where the most of the Jews were, where they folks that could speak from a similar spiritual understanding. And then you're going to go into Jerusalem into Judea. Well, that wasn't quite as good a I mean, it's closer. But that's a place where he's been rejected. You know, the gospel wasn't accepted there yet. But that's where you're going to go. And then you're going to go to Samaria. Well, then you're, I mean, heathens. I'm going to send you to a place that is full of inbreds and heathens and places, people that you would not otherwise expect to receive the gospel. And then to the uttermost parts of the world. Taking them from the comfortable to the uncomfortable. To explain that, yes, you're going to be given the Spirit and you're going to have to grow in it and you're going to have to learn and, and allow the Spirit's control in your life to discern and ex explain and expound all of those other questions you have. And as you live in the Spirit and as you walk in the Spirit, it will, He will lead you out of Jerusalem into Judea out to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. It doesn't seem familiar. It's not like we're just going to shotgun you out and throw, throw you to the, to the ends of the earth or the uttermost parts of the earth, but, but that the Spirit will lead you in your service to Him, to God, through all of these different places to fulfill that commission that He gave them at the end of the Gospels. And that's the last words we record. It says, when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly to heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by in white apparel, which also said, you men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up to heaven? Okay, this is another one where sometimes obvious things are said, like there are lines in Bible that I, I go, it's perfectly reasonable for them to be standing and gazing up to heaven. Jesus just ascended to heaven. Two angels stand next to him. I know there's accounts that talk about it being uh, possibly Moses. and We're just going to go to two celestial beings standing next to Jesus as his, his, he is ascending up through heaven. And these two guys, these celestial beings, look down and say, why do you stand here gazing up to heaven? The same Jesus that's ascending to you now will return. And shall come in like manner as ye have seen him go up into heaven. I, 
I, I, I, I want to believe that that wasn't a rebuke from the celestial beings, but that it was more of a, a, a question. Why, why are you looking up like this? Why are you so surprised by this experience? Jesus, He's ascending to heaven. He will return in like manner as you have seen Him go into heaven. I think their response is, is perfectly reasonable. Then they returned unto Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into the upper room. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James, they all continued in one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus, and his brethren. That seems like a good place to be. After making this experience, after having this last dialogue with Jesus, now recognizing, I think it would be pretty clear and emphatic in my life that Jesus had returned to heaven. It wasn't, you know, this is another one where when he was crucified and he was put in the tomb, they assumed he had died. They went back they see he's disappeared. He's not there. Their minds race as to where he's been. Where could he go? Where have they taken him? If Jesus had just simply disappeared, there would have been all kinds of questions that could have been asked as to where was he? What did he mean? Why? why? They got to be witnesses of his ascension to heaven. Could there be any question about where he was? Was there any question that what he had said was true? Was there any question when he said, I go away, but I'm going to come back. I'm going to send somebody else. I mean, there's no question about where Jesus is going if he literally ascends to heaven before your very eyes. But that's still a lot to take in. That's still a lot to process. That's not even just spiritual imagery, that's spiritual reality on a scale that I don't think we can appreciate. So when it says that they all got back together and they went to that upper room and they fervently, in one accord, were making supplication to God, I feel like that verse is a wild understatement as to the level of devotion that was going into that evening and day, and whatever it was, however long it was. Because process what they're also thinking. In their minds, Jesus has still told them that the Holy Spirit is coming in not too many days. Not too many days hence, the Spirit is coming. And you just watched Him, I'm not trying to be flippant, but march up through heaven. How fast do you want that Holy Spirit to come? How fast do you want this thing resolved? We had him with us, then we lost him. He died, was buried. Longest three days of our lives. We got him back. He's a little different now. He's coming through doors that are shut and things are a little off, but he's still here with us. Now he's telling us he's going to disappear again. We knew that institutionally. We, we remember that story. We remember that lesson. Didn't really process it the way that we probably should have or could have. But now he says he's leaving, but not too many days. That's, that's the other one, right? Vacation for the kids started Thursday afternoon. They get home. And then the question is, how many more days of vacation do I have? How many more days until this? For Max, it's how many days till my birthday? For 
you know, most of them, it's for how many more days till my birthday? How many more days until the wedding? They're all excited about going to the wedding. How many days until this? How many days? Imagine the anticipation. Jesus has now walked up, walked up, ascended, drawn up, however he went. How many more days is it till that Spirit's coming? How many more days do I have to wait? And so they're in one accord, up in the room, praying. But what do you do in the meantime? Verse 15, And in those days, so in those intervening days between Ascension and Pentecost, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together, it says in the midst now, there's 120 people. He stands up and says, we've got an empty chair to fill. Everybody in town knows this story about Judas betraying Jesus, Jesus being crucified, and Judas making out, uh, getting some money from it. And Judas went and bought this field. Everybody knows about it. But the scripture says, back in Psalms, it says that his, his, um, his position, his bishopric, his seat at the disciples' table needs to be filled by somebody else. We need, to, we need to fill this seat. I appreciate that it's Peter that stands up because he's probably the one that is so got so much fidgety agita that doesn't know what to do. He needs to have some kind of activity going on because this days till Pentecost are not coming fast enough. And he says, well, at least we can fill this seat and fulfill what the Scripture said that his bishopric would be passing on to someone else. And so it says... For it is written in the book, let us habitation in it. Wherefore, of these men, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out from the beginning, beginning with the baptism of John, unto the day that he was taken up from us, must be one ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. I don't know that it said that anywhere. I don't know that that was recorded in Scripture as a requirement or if that was prescribed by Christ that, hey, if anything happens to one of you guys, then somebody who else has been there from the beginning should fill that spot. But I appreciate that when Peter is laying out a proposition to the disciples and to the followers of Christ to say, we know we need to fill this chair, fill this seat, that it would be one who had experienced Christ just the same way, minus maybe the Last Supper moments, had experienced walking with Christ just the same way as the rest of the disciples, was there from the baptism of John right up to his ascension. But what do they do? They don't have any instructions on how how to raise this person up. It says they prayed, and they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, knowest the hearts of all men. Show whether of these two thou hast chosen. And somehow I remembered this story and I convoluted this. That's not the right word. I confused this with the story in uh, a little farther back in, or farther down in Acts where it says um, that they prayed. They were all, the, the, the believers were all there and they prayed. And the Holy Spirit said, separate me, Paul and, Sil- Paul and Barnabas. They couldn't do that yet. They couldn't do that. They, they, the Spirit, they did not have the Spirit yet. They couldn't stand there in one accord and pray and have the Spirit say, separate, separate me, Matthias. 
And so they did what? The next best thing that they remembered. When do you ever remember casting lots as a good thing? Every time in Scripture, I th- when I think cast lots, I think the end of the Gospels, where they cast lots and parted his garments. There's always casting lots, and it was like they were gambling. I just always envisioned it was like playing, I don't know, was it craps, where they throw the dice? They shake it up, and they throw the dice out and see who jumps out. Who, that casting lots to figure out who was going to be the next disciple seems like a kind of a, ooh, not the best way to go about it. But it was the neck, it was, it was what they knew, it was what they understood, and, and they, they took what they understood in a spiritual sense that God had to ordain one of these brothers, but they didn't know which one. And so as they had taken, they said, Separate us, or tell us which one thou knowest of these two men that thou hast chosen, that he may take part in this ministry and apostleship for which Judas was by transgression fall, and then he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered among the apostles. It says to me that, that God was... God shows us so much grace. I, I don't mean to prescribe or suggest that there was anything wrong with what they did by the casting lots piece. But I just use it as compar- by comparison as to how even just a few months later, a few years later, when they were having to make hard spiritual decisions or weighty spiritual decisions, they could rely completely upon the Spirit. They had experience with Him. They had uh, developed some maturity. They had exercised themselves in the Spirit to the point where they were comfortable to be able to rely and confident to be able to rely on the Spirit's work and direction in their lives. It wasn't a question that the Spirit was going to interact with them in a way more powerful than having Christ right before them. They knew that when they offered up that kind of a prayer, that God was going to answer and say, separate me. In the same way when they were trying to find uh, the deacons in the church, and it was Philip and and, uh, Stephen, they simply prayed and the Spirit gave them the direction as to who those two were supposed to be. But if we're not there yet in our spiritual lives, I've walked with the Lord for some time now. But there are still times in my life I trust I trust that the line, the, the thread of my life is being woven and, and directed by the Lord. But I still don't know what the next answer is supposed to be. I'll, a question will come into my life. I mean, this is not going to surprise any of you more mature parents, but every day a parenting question comes up that you have not faced before and you are forced to answer a question you've not heard before and you don't have the answer to yet. So you, you rely on what you know. You kind of default back to what's comfortable. Sometimes it's, it's the proverbial casting lot. I trust that God's going to bring the best, that God is going to bring the best answer out, but I don't exactly know how to get there. 
And in a spiritual sense, that's what I, I see the disciples were doing. Until they had the Spirit, until they had time to walk with Him, until they had time to exercise themselves, to trust that when the Spirit says this, that God is going to bring it about just the same way that He did when Jesus was with us. We have those same interactions in our lives. That I believe it, Lord. I believe this is true, but I haven't walked with You long enough to, to see it come to fruition yet. So, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I want to do good. I want to exercise myself in being obedient to You. But I don't know how to do it that way yet. So I'm going to do it the way I know until Your Spirit gives me the power and gives me the direction and gives me the grace to, to be the follower that I inevitably, not inevitably, that I can be as a result of that experience and maturity and walk of faith. And then hearkening back to the parenting thing, sometimes you look back and go, boy, that answer that I, I, the decision we needed to make in that situation, or the answer I needed to give in that situation, was way simpler than we made it out to be. It seemed like a monumental task in the moment. And yet, the Lord was gracious and gave us the direction and the strength and the answer in the moment when we needed it so that we could have that building block, that stepping stone, that Ebenezer, that reminder that said, okay, I, I have blessed you in this way. I have directed you here. Don't forget that. Because next time, I don't want to have to teach you the same lesson again. I will if I have to. But I don't want to have to keep teaching you this same lesson because the next one is supposed to be the building block. There's an old song that I always recall, I always um, repeat that the, the burdens that we carry when we lay them down become stepping stones to higher ground. It seems like the most weighty burden in the moment. And we're trying to figure out our way through whatever situation it is. And we can't see the forest for the trees or whatever that silly analogy is, but I can't, all I see is this rock in front of me. And what God's asking me to do is Take what you know. Rely on me. Be obedient. Set it down. And I will, allow, I will make that a stepping stone to a higher and a deeper... Why? Well, we're going all kinds of elevations. To a deeper spiritual relationship so that we can take you to a higher ground. Perhaps most the, important, the most important piece of this passage to me this morning was God's reaction, Jesus' reaction to the disciples. At multiple moments, there were things that didn't seem like they were perfectly aligned, that didn't seem like they were going exactly like He would want. And yet God showed them grace. He didn't say, no, because you asked a silly question, I'm not sending the Spirit. Because you asked a silly question, and couldn't just sit there patiently. I'm going to make you wait longer for it. This wasn't a 40 more years in the desert kind of a moment. God was gracious to understand that they're fallible. We are fallible. That only through His power can we be perfected. Only through the Spirit's work in our lives can we live lives that are worthy of Him. And so, He gave them more grace to wait for the time. And in the next chapter, Ethan and I were talking about this Last week, in the next chapter, 
The Holy Spirit comes, Peter preaches, and 3,000 people are baptized. First sermon. To think that God can't do things that blow our minds, that He doesn't have all things worked according to our good, is silly of us to think. And sometimes we just have to hearken back to recognizing the grace that He shows that it's not for us to know the times of the seasons which the Father hath put into His power, but we will receive, we have received, we can receive that Holy Ghost that will make us witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Syracuse. May the Lord bless these words.